from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Tom Green. I'm one of the elders currently serving on session. Please join me in the call to worship. Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. God is righteous and victorious, yet the Lord is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. Blessed, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You are our God, and we will praise you. You are our God, and we will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for God is good. God's faithful love endures forever. Our first scripture lesson is from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, it is on page 59 on the Old Testament. Hear now the word of God. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His picked officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury. It consumed them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. In your steadfast love, you led the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples heard, they trembled. Pangs seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Adam were dismayed. Trembling seized the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan melted away. Terror and dread fell upon them. By the might of your arm, they became still as a stone until your people, O Lord, passed by, until the people whom you acquired passed by. You brought them in and planted them on the mountain of your own possession, the place, O Lord, that you made your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, which began on page 21 of the New Testament. Here again, God's word. 
When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to me and to each one of us so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Sullivan's Travels is the name of a film written and directed by Preston Sturges that was released in the United States in 1941. Uh, the plot follows a movie director named John Sullivan. Uh, this fictional director has made a fortune uh, producing mindless and nonsensical comedies when he has this clarifying moment of purpose. He comes to sort of a, a crossroads in his career. He realizes that he wants to do away with making these, these movies that don't matter, and he wants to make something serious. He wants to direct something of substance. He wants to direct something that is critical and, and socially relevant. And so he pitches an idea to his studio, and they promptly reject it. Instead, they have another script in mind for him. It'll be the, the next big Hollywood comedy. But he will not be denied. He continues to press, and they finally cave and relent, and they allow him to do this serious film. And in order for him to do this film, he, he decides that he needs to experience what it's like to be poor he needs to experience what it's like to be downtrodden, and so he dresses as a penniless pauper, and he, and he takes to rail cars, moving from one town to the next. And the film progresses through a series of, of encounters and, and unfortunate happenings and even criminal activity. You see, Sullivan is arrested for assaulting a railroad worker, and he's sentenced to a prison labor camp. And it's there in the labor camp that he realizes that his quest to make this socially relevant, this critical and serious film is really just a futile endeavor. 
See, one night the prisoners gathered uh, to watch a Walt Disney film called Playful Pluto. And they all gather around the screen. And as the film plays, Sullivan notices that, that the prisoners are, are transfixed by this film. And, and he sees something come over them, almost like they're having an out-of-body experience. They are transcended to another place. They are no longer in prison. They no longer remember their crimes. They no longer remember their poverty or their life struggle that preceded their time in, in jail. They escape, and they move to a totally different place. Sullivan realizes that this is really what people want. They don't want a, a film to, to sort of hold up a mirror and, and show them the desperation of their lives. They actually want to escape from it. So he gives up this dream to make a serious film because... Nobody wants it. They only want something that will help them escape. Alan Brinkley is a professor of American history at Columbia University, and he delivered a lecture about a decade ago at Baylor, and it was entitled Culture and Politics in the Great Depression. Culture and Politics in the Great Depression. And in that lecture, he noted that this film, Sullivan's Travels, highlighted the commitment held by purveyors of culture during the Great Depression, during the time of the Great Depression, those media captains, that there was a common commitment that they would produce content that diverts people's attention away from the dissatisfaction of their lives. It was a purposeful move by movie studios. He notes this, in Life magazine in the 1930s, you all remember Life magazine with its beautiful and wonderful pictures. 1930s, when it began publishing and became an enormous success, most of the pictures give no indication that there was such a thing as a depression. Most of the pictures of, are of bathing beauties and ship launchings and building projects and sports heroes. Pictures of almost everything except poverty and unemployment. He notes that in the radio schedules of the 1930s, most of the programming was, was pure escapist entertainment, music, variety shows, adventures, and comedies. And in the movies of the 1930s, with a few notable exceptions, he says, they consciously and deliberately set out to divert people from their problems. As a historian of the Great Depression, Brinkley is confident in his assessment that escapism, as it was promoted by media culture, is part of what helped people move through and emotionally and psychologically survive the Great Depression. He also makes the case that it's this form of escapism, that, that we can point to this form of escapism as the reason that there was not a societal revolution during the Great Depression, that no one took up arms against the, 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 the ruling elite, against those who were unaffected, those who managed the systems that eventually came crashing down. There was no uh, working class backlash. And, and this historian Brinkley says that the reason for that is because the culture was obsessed with escaping its turmoil. 
About 85 years prior to the Great Depression, it was philosopher Karl Marx who offered a more uh, religiously intoned reflection on escapism. He wrote this, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. This part's probably familiar when he says, it is the opium of the people. For Marx, the religious class of the 19th century was no different than the media class of the 20th century during the Great Depression years. Give the people something to numb their pain. Give the people something so that they may avoid the harsh realities of their lives. He was critical of this type of religion because he believed it was, in fact, a form of escapism. Marx believed that religion sought to reduce anxiety through the illusion, these are his words, through the illusion that suffering will end. Sure, the religious folk would say, it won't end on this side of eternity, but we have to focus on the world that is to come. It won't end on earth but in that heavenly reality we hope for and pray for and, and long for. And so focus on that future. Spend your energy and your time and your thinking being rooted in that future. Mark believed that was what religion was selling. Give more attention to that heaven-oriented reality. He believed that this focus on the future actually did something to people. That religious folks that were so heavenly minded, as they say, became no earthly good. And, and it would drain their energy and their attention from dealing with what is right in front of them. The pain and the heartache and the heartlessness and the soullessness of the age. There is, I believe, something profound to be discovered in what mass media and Marx understood about the human condition. That we are so eager to turn away. That we're so eager to turn away. Escape doesn't sound so bad with what we know of the world. Just this week, I wanted to turn away from the chemical attacks and the war crimes committed in Syria. I wanted to turn away from the dissonance and conflicts and the zero-sum nature of our political culture. I wanted to turn away from the constant reminders that our world and our nation and our neighborhoods and our families are far from whole. They're far from just. I want to turn away from the heartache and pain of my own life, the things that I'm facing, the things that I'm dealing with, and the, and the pain and the heartache that I, that I know my loved ones are dealing with and, and this church family is dealing with. Just this morning, I want to turn off the, the notifications on my phone because I don't want to hear another terrorist attack against Christians in Egypt. I want to turn away. You know, this instinct is real. It's real. And it's evidenced day in and day out by our proclivity, both as individuals and as a society, to move toward willful ignorance, to move toward distraction, to move toward amusement, to move toward self-indulgence. In the aftermath of the I-85 incident, 
navigation apps and devices have proved themselves to be quite helpful. I don't know how helpful they'll be now that spring break is over and everyone in Atlanta is back on the roads. We will see. But at least for this first part of this, uh, this transportation calamity, uh, these uh, GPS systems are essential to trying to, avi to, to avoid rather bottlenecks and, and traffic congestion caused by this fire and the bridge collapse. The these apps and these devices are helping us right now to avoid trouble. They're helping us to avoid trouble. They turn us away from danger. They turn us away from the frustrations of delays, and they, they try to get us to where we want to go as quick and as pain-free as possible. And I was thinking about that this week, and I wonder that, that maybe it is so that for some of us, we want God or our Christianity to work that way. Wouldn't it be great if the Christian life satisfied that deep, deep, instinct to turn away so that we can avoid the trouble? Wouldn't it be great if the, the Christian life just got us to our eternal destination as quickly and as, as pain-free as possible? Isn't that what faith is all about, to make the road smooth, to make life happier or at least more bearable? Well, the truth of the matter is I think Marx was wrong. I think Marx was specifically wrong about Christianity. And I am sure, as it was then and as it is now, that there are Christian communities that focus on escape. It's an escapist kind of faith. It's a community of faith that, that sort of gathers in holy huddles and stays put and stays secure and safe in its own bubble of faith. But Marx was wrong and at least as it's measured against biblical Christianity, and at least as it's measured against the narrative of the New Testament, because the Christian life is not a life of escape, says the Scriptures. The Christian life is a life of engagement. More specifically, it's a life that is sent out into the world as witnesses to what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do in the oppressive and heartless and soulless conditions of our world and in the troubled and brokenhearted person. If Jesus had a GPS and he was looking to avoid trouble, it would have most certainly told him to steer clear of Jerusalem, right? I mean, that was the city where violent revolution was always on the verge. That was the city where the religious elite of the day uh, had dividing lines, very clear and particular ones, that said, this person is in and this person is not. That was the city where prophets like Jesus went to die. And so his GPS would have told him, make a legal U-turn and proceed to the route. They would have told him to avoid Jerusalem at all costs. But Jesus, following the call of God on his life, does the exact opposite. He does not turn away. He rides right into trouble. Rides right into it. 
In a similar way, we've been tracing, if you've been with us these last several weeks in, in the season of Lent, we've been tracing the Exodus story. And we're at that point where, where, where the people have crossed the Red Sea and we heard Johnny read the text about Moses' song and the people singing to God for God's rescue. God did rescue the people from the hands of the Egyptians, but he did not provide a total escape because the next move in this story is into the wilderness. It's into trouble. It's into a life that's going to require an obedience and trust in God that will last 40 years. It's not an escape. They walk right into trouble. See, the life of discipleship is not a life of escape. It's a life of turning toward the people and situations God has called us to. We turn as Christians toward wilderness roads. We ride in to troubled cities. That's the business of the church. We don't escape. We walk on and we ride in. A few weeks ago, Kevin Nabb and Katie Sundermeyer, two of our pastors in, in the Ministry of Care, they organized training for our staff and and some lay leaders on, on ministering uh, to those experiencing suicidal desperation. One of the questions, which is appropriate in this hour as I'm preaching in the moment, the facilitator asked us, how many of you ever have said the word suicide in a sermon? And I had to think hard about that, maybe once, maybe twice, in the 15 plus years I've been preaching? It just goes to show that this is one of those conversations we don't want to walk in on. It's one of those conversations we don't want to ride in on. But for our community of faith, and some of you know this more acutely than others, in this past 12 months, it's a conversation we couldn't escape from. It was right in front of us, 12 months, these past 12 months, one of our members died by suicide. Three other member families in this congregation that we have walked with have had immediate family members die by suicide. Three of our graduating seniors in the class of 2017 all go to the same high school. And in that school, two of their classmates died by suicide prior to this academic year. One of our pastors had a close family member die by suicide. We have a beloved neighboring pastor right down the street here in Midtown whose son died by suicide. This is just one piece of the story. After the eight o'clock service, I had another person come up and said that his children who go to another high school just this week, one of their classmates died by suicide. I mean, it's just one piece of the wilderness road. This is just one piece. This is just, just, just one frame in the story of of what a troubled city looks like. And I'm thankful, I'm so thankful for our pastoral staff and our care ministry and our Stephen ministers who felt called not to turn away from these, these hard wilderness roads, not to turn away from these troubled cities, but to ride into them, to practice a, a ministry of presence, reminding them that they are not alone, practicing a, a ministry of hope, 
and a ministry that testifies to God's redemptive power even in the darkest parts of our lives, even when death is real. If any of you this morning, within the sound of my voice, are, are thinking about suicide, I, I would strongly encourage you to remember that you are not alone. That, that, that you have pastors here that are ready to hear your story, that are ready to walk that wilderness road, that, that are ready to, to ride into that troubled part of your life. If it's not a pastor, tell somebody that's close to you. Tell somebody you trust, somebody you know you can share that with, because you're not alone. And this church will walk with you and support you and pray for you and encourage you in the days ahead. I close with this question. Where do you and I need to walk? We've, we've, we've come through the Red Sea. We've, we've seen God's rescue in our life, haven't we? Can, can anybody bring a testimony to God's activity in their life? I think we can. We, we've walked through it, but now there's a wilderness road ahead. Uh, now there's a troubled city ahead. And I wonder if this morning, if we're open to the Spirit, that I wonder if we won't hear the voice of God speaking softly to the very depths of our being, giving us an encouragement of where we need to walk and where we need to ride, both individually and as a community of faith. There is somebody that God, I know, is putting on your heart right now. There is some situation that I know that God is putting on your heart right now, a wilderness road, a troubled city that we're not supposed to escape from but that we're supposed to walk in and ride on. And when God gives us that, and I believe God will this very morning, the question remains, will we exercise our free will and walk on? Will we exercise our free will and ride into that trouble? For friends, that is part of the mission of the church always has been, and always will be. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, may it be so in our time. Amen. I'll leave you this with this. One of the interesting pieces about the synergy between the Exodus 15 text and the Matthew 21 text is that uh, there's a celebratory tone and resonance in these scripture verses. Uh, the, folk, the people are singing about God's goodness and God's Grace, And it reminds me of worship, right, where we sing God's grace, and it's got this sort of party theme to it. It's got a party tone to it, and, and we encounter God once again, and I hope we all have opened ourselves up to encounter God in the power of the Holy Spirit. But like those parties in Exodus 15 and Matthew 21, our time comes to an end. Those parties don't last in perpetuity. They end, and now we're sent out into the world, and and because we all have the luxury of seeing what's behind you, something just very interesting, I haven't seen this yet, but in Midtown, you see a lot of things. There's a bunch of people just walked in off the street with their cameras and were taking pictures right here of us worshiping. That was interesting. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, they're interested to see what's happening inside. I hope we're interested in seeing what's outside. Where God's active in the world as we walk these wilderness roads and ride into these troubled cities. And for that journey, may the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day of your life. Amen.